Before we dive into today's show, we want to know what you think of the podcast at DC and get your ideas for the topics we should be covering going forward. Whether this is your first time tuning in or you're a seasoned listener, go to tinyurl.com slash the podcast at DC. There you'll find our listener survey. Your feedback will help us improve our content and production quality, and it'll also allow us to better serve district residents. And now for the episode. Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians. I'm your host, Sam Quinney. Policymakers often hope that transit expansion will spur real estate and economic development in surrounding neighborhoods. The results of the research on transit-oriented development, however, are far from conclusive and the findings often conflict with one another. To understand more about the relative importance of zoning, land markets, and other policies, I'll be talking today with Jenny Schutz from the Brookings Institution. She is a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in their Metropolitan Policy Program. Jenny led a study that evaluated changes in development patterns after the opening of five new rail stations in Los Angeles. Her results are especially pertinent to the district as the region looks to implement new rail-based transit options, such as the Metro's new Silver Line stations, the DC Streetcar, and the proposed Purple Line. Jenny, welcome to the podcast at DC. Good to be here. Why don't we start by just learning a little bit about what you do at the Brookings Institute and kind of how you got there and where your research interests lie? Sure. Brookings is a think tank, so we do research on a variety of different topics, and I have colleagues who study all sorts of things I know nothing about. (laughs) I have a bunch of people who study foreign affairs and how governments interact. The Metropolitan Policy Program, which I'm part of, really just studies cities. I'm the primary person studying housing, but we also study infrastructure, economic development, labor force development, job training, so really everything that makes cities work. We're seeing in a lot of metro areas, places like D.C., New York, Boston, San Francisco, Seattle, a lot of the really highly productive metro areas, that there is more demand for housing than new housing getting built. And so what happens is the new housing, the most expensive housing, goes to the richest people, and then everybody else sort of competes for housing next down on the tier And this is particularly difficult for low-income families. They have the fewest resources, and so they wind up with the poorest quality housing or spending much more than they can really afford trying to find stable, decent quality housing that they're not going to lose. And the paper that we asked you to come here and talk on the podcast is focused on a very specific type of development, but something that I think a lot of people will be familiar with, if not in name, but in concept, and that's transit-oriented development. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that specifically is and how it aims to address some of those challenges that you're just talking about? Transit-oriented development is a term that planners use to describe a mixture of residential and commercial uses that are built generally either on top of a metro station or a light rail station or immediately nearby. So if you think of, for instance, in the D.C. area, something like Clarendon or Ballston, Mm -hmm. those are sort of classic examples of transit-oriented development where you have ground floor retail stores and restaurants and then a high-rise apartment or condo building nearby. What does that hope to do? What are the advantages of doing that, or at least the theoretical advantages of it? 
So urban economists believe that land that's really valuable, really expensive, should be used intensively, meaning we should build a lot of square footage of built space on top of the land to take advantage of it. This is particularly true for something like a transit station, because there's a very specific point where people have access to the station. People want to live close to transit so that they can get to work easily or get to other kinds of amenities. So you want to let as many people as possible live within walking distance of a train station. We think of those as sort of the origin stations where people live and they get on in the morning and go off to work. On the other side of that, we want to have a lot of jobs concentrated around stations so that people can get access to those jobs by transit. So we want to have either mostly residential or mostly commercial or a mixture of the two of those. But either way, we want to use the land within about a half mile of the transit station as intensively as possible, stack people up vertically. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a couple examples here in D.C. How common is this or how far does it date back in history? Obviously, Clarendon didn't spring up overnight here, but where did the idea come from and how long has it existed? Well, economists think that if you let land markets operate the way that they want to, you let developers build in places where there's high demand, that you'll get high density around transit stations or other sort of highly valuable land, that that will happen by itself. So lots of people want to live near the station. Developers know that. They will build a lot of apartments and condos or office buildings. So we expect this to happen through markets unless there are obstacles to the development. And that was actually one of the stations that we studied in Los Angeles got redeveloped through eminent domain. The Hollywood and Vine Station had lots of small commercial buildings and the transit agency there, which is also called Metro, bought up all of those parcels through eminent domain and was able to recombine them and do a very large scale TOD development. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get into L.A. specifically. Actually, you mentioned that some people may prefer to live near highways or something like that. And at least for somebody who's only been to L.A. a couple of times and lives on the East Coast, that strikes me as a very car centric city where that might be people's preferences. How close to the highway can I be? Why did you choose L.A. for this area of study and studying transit oriented development? Partly because I was living in Los Angeles. (laughs) I taught at USC for five years. I was living there. I actually lived in downtown, which had been not a residential area at all, essentially had no residential population. But the city had been developing a transportation network since about the early 1990s. And so the neighborhoods that were more central and closer to transit were experiencing a fair amount of development. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons to study L.A. is that it is this sort of interesting case of it's a very car-centric city, not just in its existing land use patterns, but sort of, you know, baked into the culture. People really love their cars. And they're, in fact, very resistant often to riding transit On the other hand, people there want there to be a transit system in L.A., so both voters and policymakers want there to be a subway and light rail system. They see this as one of the marks of being a great city, and they have spent nearly $10 billion of public money, a lot of it financed through local sales taxes that people voted for. So there's the sense they want to build the system, and at the same time, nobody's really sure they want to ride it. (laughs) Is that consistent with how transit-oriented development is playing out in the more modern times, or at least a return to transit-oriented development is playing out in these cities that are established but don't have a strong transportation network? 
Yeah, we see, I think, a couple of different models. So if we kind of group cities, there's a group that we call the legacy cities. So that would include Boston and New York, Philadelphia, that had either streetcars or subways or something like a rail network really going back to the beginning of the 20th century, sometimes even slightly earlier. And so those have had land use patterns that have developed around their transportation networks for over 100 years mm -hmm. at this point. And because they were originally built around people walking and riding horse-drawn carriages, they're just very dense and things are close together. Parts of D.C. are like that, too, obviously, Alexandria as well. Then we have sort of a second tier of cities, which would include D.C. and San Francisco, that built metro systems starting in about the 60s and 70s. So they were already developed and largely around car-oriented patterns, particularly in the suburbs. But it's now been 40 years since they started building it. And in parts of those regions where they were intentional about their land use, they've managed to build up these transit-oriented patterns since they built the networks in there. Those are kind of a mixed bag. They're successes mm -hmm. and failures in those metros. But then you have the really most recent wave of transit systems. Los Angeles is certainly the biggest and the newest to build a subway, mm -hmm. right? So underground heavy rail, which is really expensive to yeah. do. But there are lots of cities that have been building light rail. So places like Charlotte and Denver and Atlanta have built relatively small networks, usually a line from the airport to downtown or maybe some sort of a loop around the downtown area. Mm -hmm. The light rail has slightly different implications for transit-oriented development because it's an above-ground rail line. Yeah. So it works a little bit differently. Most of those cities don't have really high ridership. So there's also a question of how many people want to be within walking distance and how much use this will get. Yeah, definitely. I think of the MARTA in Atlanta, where I've visited a few times, and it's kind of like it goes between two points, but you're not clear if you need to be at any of those two points. If you want to go anywhere else in the city, you're stuck in a car again, right? So it's yeah. probably this economies of scale, I would imagine, too. And a lot of those systems that were built to connect the airport to downtown were done either for tourists or business travelers. So Atlanta is actually a very easy city to fly into, hop on the light rail, get yourself to your conference hotel downtown, and get yourself back. And if all you're doing is coming for a weekend of being at the conference... You don't need to rent a car, and it's very convenient. Those are really nice for short-term visitors, but they're not all that convenient for people who live there. And so if you think about the kinds of uses we would want as part of TOD, you might have hotels and restaurants and some shopping near those light rail stations, but for people who are commuting to work, most people don't live near the airport, yeah. and most people don't work in downtown Atlanta. And so if neither the job centers nor the residential neighborhoods are connected by the light rail, then it's not going to be all that practical for people who live in the city. And how does that relate to L.A.? Is there enough density, enough places that transit-oriented development could work or could generate the types of development that we would be interested in? There are some areas that would work. LA's system, like most, has kind of a political story to where it got built and yeah. where it didn't get built. So LA is really oriented east-west. The downtown has a lot of jobs, both kind of the government center and a lot of the finance jobs. And then there's a major corridor, Wilshire Boulevard, that runs east-west through the city and connects, for instance, to Westwood around UCLA. The Wilshire corridor is very dense, has a lot of jobs, and actually has a lot of dense residential areas nearby. So the smart thing to do would have been to build the subway or light rail smack down Wilshire Boulevard east-west 
connecting the two sides of the city would have enabled a lot of people to commute. And that's the worst traffic in the city is getting mm -hmm. east to west. So that would have been a great idea. Unfortunately, the west side of the city, which is the more affluent side, didn't want to have light rail. And they mobilized very effectively they got their city council members and their members of Congress in D.C. to pass laws preventing the subway from being built in the most logical wow. route. That's actually a good segue. Can you tell us a little bit about the political landscape of this? Because before we get into more of the details of the evaluation, that's useful to know if, like, should we think of this as one jurisdiction or should we think of this as a bunch of regional entities that need to collaborate on this or might have their own rules or zoning regulations or anything like that, or even plans or preferences about what they want a community to look like? The L.A. landscape is actually not as complicated as some places because the city of Los Angeles is huge and the county of Los Angeles is huge. Mm. So the transportation system there, the metro, is run by a countywide authority. And so that includes the city of Los Angeles, the city of Long Beach, and a bunch of the smaller cities, Pasadena. So the, the countywide network is better than just being stuck with one individual city. On the other hand, the different neighborhoods within the city have very different preferences and different amounts of political power. The mayor is structurally fairly weak. The city council is pretty strong. And so city council members drive a lot of the funding decisions. If the West Side city council member doesn't want the rail to come there, he's probably going to be able to block it. And then you wind up with, you know, kind of stations in lots of places, but not necessarily the optimal one if you were just drawing it on a map, as you described. Exactly. Yeah. And the network does connect some of the job centers. The first line went from downtown LA south to the city of Long Beach. Those are both big job centers, but there aren't that many people who commute between the ends of it. And mm -hmm. it ran through a mostly industrial corridor that wasn't that residential had fairly high crime rates at the time they built the rail, and so it didn't get a lot of development. They've now extended this up to the city of Pasadena, and there is more commuting between Pasadena and Los Angeles. But again, that's not sort of the two main job centers that you'd want to be linking up. Mm -hmm. So tell us what you were trying to find in your study. What sort of question were you trying to answer, and why was LA the right place for it? We were really interested in this question of whether the market drives high-density development the way economists would predict, or whether you run into political and institutional barriers that limit development, or whether there are market factors that can limit development. So you can sort of walk around LA and look at the transit stations and observe there's a lot of variation in what has happened around the transit stations since they opened. There are a handful of them, like Hollywood and Vine, like some of the stations in Pasadena, where there's new development exactly as you would predict. Ground floor retail, apartments, it's all relatively recent, seems to be fairly highly used. But there are a lot of stations that have had no visible redevelopment, no new buildings, no uses have been changed. And so the sort of impression is this is really a mixed bag, whether TOD has emerged, and we wanted to understand why. And so we picked a handful of stations, intentionally selecting a couple that had redevelopment and a couple that had not, and then sort of delved into the backstory to understand what is it that's allowing development to happen in some places and could be limiting it to others. These series of case studies that you embark on on the paper builds off of a quantitative analysis, right? Can you say a little bit more about that analysis and what you found? Sure. We started by looking at just a change in employment near stations. 
So there's some debate on how much residential is likely to occur, but jobs should be attracted to transit stations. So we had some data on the number of jobs within about a half mile of these stations, and we could just look over time and see whether there was more employment after the stations opened, whether there was a shift in the kinds of industries towards, for instance, retail and services that work really well with TOD. And what we found was no consistent relationship. So some of the stations had more employment, some had less. There weren't really consistent shifts in industries. And so the overall finding is essentially that building a rail station doesn't change your employment base in a consistent way that we can predict. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, when you're looking at the data, it looked a bit like a coin flip, whether it would go one way or the other, I'm guessing. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so why case studies then? Why is this the next logical follow-up to get at this question of transit-oriented development and what we should expect from it? Partly because zoning is really hard to measure and get good large-scale quantitative mm. data on. And zoning is one of the sort of first hypotheses you'd go to test. We know, for instance, that some of the rail lines that were built in LA were built in low-density residential neighborhoods, were zoned R1 for your zoning nerds, this <laughs> single family only. They were built in these R1 neighborhoods, and the zoning wasn't changed. So mm. we had a bit of a prior that in some cases, zoning was probably a constraint. It's really hard to get good data on zoning for neighborhoods in a way that you could do a quantitative mm. analysis. It's a lot of PDFs or scanned things, a lot of things written out. Exactly. And we were also interested in sort of the more idiosyncratic details of the neighborhoods. We knew some of the histories of a couple of the stations that it had redevelopment and knew that there were very particular things that happened just at one station. That's the kind of thing that's impossible to put into a regression. And so you have to do <laughs> a case study in order to understand even what's going on at a handful of places. Yeah, I sense there's a project out there for a data scientist or someone who's really good with open text analyses <laughs> to kind of bring some of that data out to the forefront in the future for researchers. So which stations did you pick and how did you pick them? You mentioned some of them had developed and some of them didn't, but I imagine you could have picked many that could fit in those two categories. Sure. So we wanted to pick a couple that were sort of paired within the same neighborhood to get a sense of how the station area dynamics played out compared to the larger neighborhood housing market. So the downtown area was a natural one to pick that has the highest density of stations that also has a really high density of jobs. So it's an area where you would want to see some reaction of the market. So we picked the downtown neighborhood and two stations there, one with some new housing and one without. Then we were also looking at the Hollywood neighborhood, which has, again, a fair number of stations. So that was one of the main corridors. And that's a neighborhood that's gone through a lot of economic change and social change over the past 15, 20 years. So we picked two stations in the Hollywood neighborhood and then just one station on the gold line heading up to Pasadena. We thought about trying to pair that sort of a very peculiar geography. There's a mm. valley and the rail line runs up the valley. And so you can't really pick that many areas that are not on the station line that are similar. And the rail runs through a couple of pretty distinct neighborhoods and then crosses outside of the L.A. city boundaries. So we wanted to keep all of the stations inside the city of L.A. So there was at least one political authority making the decisions. Um, okay. Can you say how you went at answering the question in terms of looking at zoning? Like what sorts of things were you looking at? Yeah, so we used the baseline city zoning map, which is available online, and could just observe what the uses were that were allowed around the station. So for those of you who don't spend your lives 
studying zoning maps. What it shows you is these sort of broad categories. Is it zoned for residential or for commercial? If it's residential, what's the density? Can you build single family houses, two or three apartment buildings, larger apartment buildings? What's the height that's allowed? If it's commercial, what kinds of uses are allowed under this? So the zoning map gave us that sort of basic information. But then we also looked at the set of plans, land use plans, which are not binding laws, but they're sort of statements of goals or principles. So a neighborhood land use plan will set out what the neighborhood wants, kind of its vision for itself. And all of the neighborhoods have these land use plans that they develop every five to 10 years to kind of guide development moving Mm -hmm. forward. And certainly it's part of living together. You have to figure out not everybody's going to have the same preferences over those things. So getting to an answer is a messy process sometimes. Yes. We could see that when you read some of the neighborhood plans, you can see the tension that comes out. So Highland Park was one of the most interesting examples. It's an older neighborhood. A lot of the buildings were originally developed in the teens and the 20s, has not historically been all that wealthy. So sort of been working class Latino, has had a large immigrant population. There are some historic buildings and there's some interest in keeping a little bit of the historic neighborhood character, preserving some of those. There are definitely people there who would like the neighborhood to stay the way it is. There are some long-term homeowners there. There are also people who would like to see it develop more and take advantage of the rail station to have more access, potentially make it easier for people to get to jobs downtown. And so the neighborhood plans read like, we'd like to preserve the character of the neighborhood, but we also want to develop around the (laughs) transit station. And often it was quite hard to tell, for instance, whether you could replace the historic structures with something that's new and larger than what's already there. And how do those plans translate or not into different zoning decisions or changes in those areas? There hadn't been a lot of changes to the zoning. So zoning gets updated not very frequently, and that's also quite a contentious process. So what's more frequent is that you develop a new neighborhood plan or create a new overlay district that lays out some goals. Those may or may not wind up changing the underlying Mm -hmm. zoning. So the plan doesn't, like you said, it's a statement of goals for the area, but not necessarily the actual zoning that can affect whether something's a single family home or an industrial factory or something like that. That's right. So the plan is sort of the statement, and then the zoning is usually supposed to be revised to be consistent with the plan, but sometimes there's a lag in doing that. Mm -hmm. And so broadly, what are the lessons that you learned from looking at these case studies? Yeah, there were a couple of kind of big picture lessons. The two places that had substantial residential development after the station both had strong local land markets. So there were neighborhoods that had a pretty strong demand. People wanted to live there. So there was money to be made by private sector developers building to them. They also had zoning that was broadly compatible with the uses of TOD. So both of them allowed fairly tall buildings. They allowed mixed-use commercial and residential buildings. But they also had sort of targeted policies that the local government designed just for those neighborhoods. Mm. So the Hollywood and Vine Station... The use of eminent domain is a really you know, sort of heavy-handed tool yeah. and brought out pretty rarely. So that was one of the cases where the Metro Transit Authority decided it was worth it to use eminent domain, take over all these parcels, raise the buildings, and then contract with a private developer to do the redevelopment. So that's a big process. They got sued. It took them 10 years to resolve the lawsuit and actually get this built. But that was a very 
conscious intervention by the local government to make their vision for the neighborhood come true. The other station that had a lot of new housing, Pershing Square, was in an area that was almost entirely non-residential. So it had a ton of office buildings from about the teens and 20s, 10 to 15 story buildings that had sat vacant. So this was an area that no longer had demand for office space. So there were these existing buildings that just sitting there and the city passed an adaptive reuse ordinance allowing developers to change these vacant office buildings into apartments and condos. So that allowed them to get a lot of new housing pretty quickly without doing ground up development and take advantage of these existing buildings. And both of those were really very targeted to the specific neighborhood to address problems that those stations would have had in the absence of interventions. Those aren't necessarily fundamental factors of transit-oriented development, right, or of putting in transit or anything like that. Those are decisions, right, that they were made by the local areas. Right. Those are housing decisions, land use decisions made by the city in order to maximize the investment in the transportation, Mm -hmm. right? So if you build a transportation network and you build stations, but people can't live nearby and jobs can't open nearby, you haven't gotten as much out of the investment as you would like. And so this is a good decision for local governments that want to maximize use of those particular stations. And what about the other areas that didn't develop? What did you see there? So the one that was closest to Hollywood and Vine that did not have development was a neighborhood that didn't really have very strong demand. So it was sort of a mixture of some older residential, some institutional uses. There was a community college, some healthcare facilities, but not a particularly high-income neighborhood. It was mostly working-class Latino. Lots of people actually rode transit because they didn't have cars. Um, So people rode buses before Mm -hmm. and switched to riding the metro, but just not a neighborhood where it was clear that rents would support new development. Mm -hmm. And they actually developed a new TOD-specific plan to try to encourage development, but developers didn't see it as profitable, and so nothing happened. The neighborhood downtown that didn't develop a civic center, it's a really interesting one. It's close enough to sort of the downtown. There were strong demand for both housing and jobs nearby, but it's kind of like the Smithsonian Station here. So it's a station in the midst of a big open public park surrounded by a bunch of government-owned buildings. So for instance, City Hall is nearby and a lot of the county court buildings are nearby. And one of the things that we know is that governments and institutional landowners don't behave like profit-maximizing landlords. Mm. So it's not like the city of Los Angeles was going to sell City Hall to be redeveloped into condos just because the land was worth more or that the county court was going to close down and you know turn into a shopping center or something like that. So that station provides access to a lot of jobs. The public space is beautiful and gets a lot of use, but there's been no redevelopment of the land because of the zoning and the land ownership that essentially are going to limit the ability of developers to use that space. And can you say a little bit more? You mentioned at the beginning in the traditional urban economics view of the power of land use value and real estate markets. Can you say a little bit more about why that's important here? And should the metro stations themselves drive up the cost of real estate or the appeal of those neighborhoods? That's kind of the $64,000 question in TOD. There are some transit planners who think if you build a transit station, that in and of itself will drive up the land values and development will just happen. Mm -hmm. It definitely depends on how much demand there is for ridership at that location. So building a station someplace where most people are going to drive It's not clear that you're going to have that much more demand for the neighborhood than you did before. 
Most of the stations that had some development had pretty high land values to start with, and so probably developers would have built there if they could. In some senses, the city used building a station as a way to change the zoning and to unleash demand that had been mm. pent up before. And so that ties into when you were talking about what perhaps might have been the ideal path for the metro, which was, if I remember correctly, starting in one very affluent area. So would you expect if the land values there were higher, that you might have seen even more development? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. The west side of LA, there are some dense corridors, but a lot of the west side of LA is single-family homes on fairly large lots that have been there for a long time. That's a neighborhood that just doesn't build a lot of new housing. It's sort of equivalent to Ward 3 in the district. You have a lot of wealthy homeowners who want their neighborhoods to stay the way they are, and they actively resist changes to zoning that would allow more housing to be built. So one other thing for cities to think about, if there's a neighborhood where you anticipate that there's going to be rising land values, rising demand, and you're worried about affordability and displacement, the earlier the city can get out in front of it, the better. So thinking about, for instance, like Columbia Heights, which is one of the newer stations, mm -hmm. you know, the station was built there. The city also really wanted that neighborhood to have some development, the commercial development that occurred. But it's easier for the city to, for instance, buy up land or buy up existing apartment buildings before the infrastructure investment goes in than wait until after gentrification has started when things become more expensive. Looking at sort of the map of D.C., there are still stations that haven't had a big increase in property values. Say anything east of the river, if the city and affordable housing nonprofits can be getting in, buying up properties and maintaining affordability in advance of gentrification, that will definitely be easier and cheaper. Why don't we talk about what we can learn here in D.C. from these findings? And obviously, the metro system here is not static. It's in the process of expanding right now, both along the Silver Line and also the proposed Purple Line into Maryland. So if you were advising, say, metro or the jurisdictions, really, that are going to be around those areas, what would your study suggest that they should consider in either how they address already decided on stations like the Silver Line versus like the Purple Line that there may be a little bit more room to adjust? So I think for the Silver Line, one of the challenges is that they're building stations in places that have existing land uses that are really oriented towards cars. Mm -hmm. So if you go to any of the Tyson stations, many of these are built alongside the highway, in between lanes of the highway. They're not very pedestrian friendly, and you have buildings already there. So what we can see from LA is that it takes a while, decades even, for land use patterns to change. You may need to sell the parcel to somebody else, go through the process of rezoning, do the redevelopment. I think Tyson's has something like a 50-year plan to get to a more walkable, pedestrian-friendly area. 50 years may not even be quite long enough, but I think they're at least realistic that it's not going to change overnight. It's just going to be a slow process of evolution. In terms of where to site the stations... LA sort of backed into a handful of places that were already pretty dense, that had a lot of jobs or that had a lot of housing, which means the minute the station opens, there's a built-in market. Mm -hmm. So that makes a lot of sense. If you put the station someplace where people can use it immediately, even if you don't get redevelopment immediately, you're going to have riders. You may have some compatible uses nearby. And so you're likely to get a quicker payoff to your investment in those locations than putting it someplace that's really low density. 
You mentioned in the paper that redevelopment of existing areas is more challenging than starting with a green field. And when I read that, I thought of green belt actually on the end of the green line and how when you get there, it's parking lots in the middle of the field. Could you say a little bit more about what are the pluses and minuses of developing in an area that doesn't have anything there already? Some of it's a question of scale. So if you go out to parts of Loudoun that are just farms, there's a big parcel of land and a developer can buy a whole parcel and do all of this sort of planning and infrastructure and build large numbers of houses at once. So either single family subdivisions or even apartments, you just get the economies of scale you're doing sort of one time around this. Infill parcels are going to be more complicated. You have neighbors, you have existing structures there. Almost always the rules for development are more complicated in built out areas. So even small things like you can't do demolition 24 hours a day because you make noise for the neighbors. And often there are rules about when you can start and stop work and taking away the materials or recycling the materials. So some of that is just in inherent, it's going to be a more complex thing. The sites, the parcels are already defined in their size and shape. So if you think about some of the intersections that make strange angles, those are more complicated parcels mm-hmm. to develop than just having a big rectangle that you can chop up into pieces. Yeah. But are there benefits to doing the redevelopment, the infill sites that you wouldn't get? Why aren't we just building out in Greenbelt right now? Some of it is to take advantage of the infrastructure. So if you Go build a parking lot that's in downtown D.C. You're already connected to streets. You have sidewalks. You have water. You have sewer. Maybe you have to make some upgrades, but all of that infrastructure is there, and so it's cheaper than building all of that, a new extension. But the primary reason why developers want to do infill development is that those are generally areas where land rents are higher. So you're going to be able to charge more for the finished product. You can build a bunch of single-family houses or townhouses out in Greenbelt, but if you're building a condo building in Navy yards, the rents on that are going to be much higher. Consistent with the rest of your findings in our discussion, if you build it, doesn't mean they will come, whether it's jobs or people or anything. So in doing this work, are there other research questions that it's spurred for you? Where are you going next in looking at transit-oriented development? So I'm not looking specifically at transit-oriented development, but the underlying questions of can you build in the places that have high land values where we should be building mm-hmm. is definitely a theme that underlies yeah. my research. So are there neighborhoods that have access to jobs, access to existing transportation, good schools, low crime, amenities that people want to live next to where you can't build as much housing as the market would like, Mm -hmm. either because of strictly what's written down in the zoning or because of political pushback or these sort of market factors like the land is just owned in lots of little parcels that doesn't facilitate redevelopment. And I guess having only moved to D.C. about six years ago, but having visited a lot for the last 20 years or so, I'm often actually surprised that, you know, relatively recently, some of the stations that I take as a given as part of the metro network within the district boundaries actually still exist or didn't exist until relatively recently. Do you think we should be thinking of putting more stations in the district in areas like that or, you know, the barriers to kind of accumulating enough parcels of land or in the zoning that we currently have in place? Do you think those would be too high? There certainly are parts of the district that would benefit from having better transportation infrastructure. The downside of doing rail is that it's really expensive Mm -hmm. and it takes a long time to build the rail network itself. 
you know, some of the stations that have been built more recently. So for instance, Noma was an infill station. You had the rail line. It was just adding the station. Mm -hmm. Those are going to be easier and cheaper than building new rail lines. But the district could do a lot more with bus rapid transit. So dedicated bus lanes and frequent service can have similar kind of transportation access to a rail line. It's much faster and much cheaper to build, and it lets you go in places where maybe you couldn't build a rail line. So DC's got all of these lovely arterial spokes, sort of the major roads going in and out of the district, most of which have heavy car traffic, but not necessarily dedicated bus lanes. So something that could get by the traffic in essentially the same way that the metro goes underneath the traffic, but along the existing infrastructure. Yeah, and those would be great to do sort of filling in the areas between the metro lines. So if you think about, for instance, the red line goes up Connecticut and Wisconsin, and then it goes up the other side, and you've got sort of the main middle part of the district. So, you know, if I had a pen, I'd run bus rapid transit down 16th Street all the way from Silver Spring, down Georgia, out New York and Rhode Island. I mean, essentially sort of all of those major roads, you could do a dedicated bus lane, run rapid transit. And if you allowed development, if you also changed the zoning, you could really stack people along those corridors so that they could rely on buses and not have to drive to work. And one thing that's really important from the city's perspective is to have all of the agencies in the room talking about this. So Los Angeles, the transit agency is a countywide agency. They do the transit funding and planning. They have no control over land use. Mm -hmm. And land use is done by the city. So it's even a different level of government. The city doesn't have control over the transit, but they have control over land use. And they made a lot of these decisions totally independently. Mm. So the city planning department that controls zoning didn't do anything around the transit stations. It's not even clear they were having the conversations with the metro agency that they should have. So hopefully DC can get DOT and Office of Planning in the same room together to talk about what they're doing. Well, Jenny Schutz, thanks so much for being on the podcast at DC. We really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks, Sam. It was good to be here. producer is Nellie Moore, and our podcast intern is Tim Madden. For more episodes of the podcast at DC, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.